Welcome to On The Verge. This podcast will highlight interviews from entrepreneurs, musicians, and professional golfers. It will center around what tools they have used to help them reach their dreams, how they use golf to further their career, whether it be for escape from the rigors of their profession or to build more business, and how the communitas of wine, music, and golf enrich their lives. This is all about the enjoyment of life, rising above the struggles, and stretching past the best to be better every day. On The Verge. On The Verge is presented by Callaway Golf. The Apex Iron from Callaway defined a new category of player's irons. They combine the feeling and look of a forged iron with Callaway's leading distance technologies. With Apex, golfers experience an unmistakable leap in performance, and the new Apex is taking perfection even further. Callaway's 360 face cup, which makes everything better, generates industry-leading distance in the new Apex irons, and the unmatched feel will get every golfer's attention. This kind of power, distance, and control is not supposed to feel this great. Apex is in a class by itself. New tungsten weighting in each iron fine-tunes launch and trajectory throughout the set, which delivers a new level of precision in a stunning player's shape. The new Apex is the ultimate forged player's distance iron. The unmatched feel and distance, playability, and control are redefining the player's iron category. Again, once you experience an Apex, nothing else compares. This is Callaway's best for the best. See perfection in every shot with the new Apex at your local golf retailer or visit CallawayGolf.com and see what makes Callaway the number one iron in golf. Welcome to On The Verge. Uh, got another great uh, show lined up for us today. Today we'll be interviewing Chief Marketing Officer of Journey Pure, Josh Foster. Josh, how are you today, buddy? Good, man. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Thanks, you, uh, thanks for taking the time to out of your busy schedule to come be on The Verge. Uh, one of the things that I'm most intrigued by are the roads to success that people have had. And right now you're in a particular uh, arena that's thriving because mental health, mental wellness, mental illness is in the forefront of nearly everybody's life. When you, when you look at the position that you're in and all of the things that you're getting a chance to do, what are some of the keys or the hallmarks of your success, your fundamentals that you cling to that have made you journey pure and your position as chief mar- chief marketing officer so profound uh for me and it's a great question but for me it's it's all about the team mm-hmm. um, we have a phenomenal team from clinicians to the folks that report directly to me in sales and marketing um you know their ability to get the message out in a way that is crafted to to be the forefront of people's mind when they think about addiction treatment or, or mental health treatment in the state of Tennessee or in Florida or in Kentucky where we operate. That's a big piece of it. But making sure that those people who work for us are enjoying the work that they do. Mm. If you listen to my CEO who's involved in every interview we have at our company, we have 550 people working for us across three states, 13 outpatient centers, four residential treatment programs, and he's involved in almost every single interview, which I know sounds crazy, but he only asks one question. What excites you about the work that you do? And then, he, you know, usually a subsequent question is, um, what, what do you want to get out of this job that would bring you joy? Um, and it's a question that we ask everybody on the team once they're a member of the team for a really long time. So making sure that people are enjoying the work that they do is a big piece of it. Mm-hmm. 
The other piece of it, though, I think is really taking time to understand the metrics that you can control. You know, from me and my perspective, a lot of what I do is data-driven, um, uh, not really shooting from the hip very often when you're dealing with trying to expand, you know, your market presence and, and uh, how people recognize your name and accept your brand. So there's a lot of data behind what, what decisions we do make. And um, you got to really stop to understand exactly what metrics you can control and making sure that the team who's supposed to be having a really great time doing the job that they do Mm -hmm. understand that the things that they are, they they can control. Those are the things that they're accountable for. Uh, I give a great example. You know, we have a team of outside business development representatives who go and speak with clinicians or, you know, uh, doctors, attorneys, people who are facing individuals who might struggle with the issues we can solve. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you might think that admissions is something they can control or the number of opportunities that come into their pipeline is something that they can control. The only thing they really can control is their activity and their attitude. Getting up every day, making sure that they put in a full eight because that's what we pay them for, that they have a good time doing it, that they are uh, making sure that they're very, very forthright about what they need and what they want to provide as a result. Mm-hmm. And those are the, th- the actions and the activity. That's all that they can control. But making sure that we know that that's all we expect of them is to control their controllables. Mm-hmm. I think those are the keys to, to some of our successes this year, for sure. Really recalibrating what's within our team members' controllables and making sure that they go after that with ferocity every day and, um, and we hold them accountable to it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a voracious reader, and, and speaking of control your controllables, there's a good friend of mine who's written a bunch of books, one of them, Chop Wood, Carry Water, Josh Medcalf. And his big deal all is control your controllables. Mm-hmm. And I think that many people veer off the rails because they try to control uncontrollables. That creates anxieties. Mm-hmm. The anxieties create a desire to medicate the anxieties. And then it gives them a false sense of comfort, mm-hmm. which leads them down a bad road yeah. in, a, in a variety of ways. When you think about the controllables... What are your controllables at Journey Pure? Well, we are a customer-oriented organization, obviously. The customer is the most important thing to us. It's, you know, um, we're, we're 100% always going to be people over profits. Mm-hmm. And we are a for-profit company, and the, but, but that doesn't mean that um, we won't ever put our people first. They are always first. Um, our customers are, are so important to us, um, and our customers are defined by the people who refer patients to us, their family members of the patients, and the patients themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what we can control is a smile on our face when someone walks in the door who's made an unbelievably challenging decision to get healthy and well. Yeah. Um, you'd be surprised. You know, it's such an oxymoron. I want to be healthy. I want to be well. Everybody wants to be healthy and well. When you make that decision and you're at the turning point of your life where you know that the drinking or the substance abuse isn't working anymore, the isolation, the anxiety, the panic attacks, the the bipolar disorder, this isn't working for you anymore, Mm -hmm. and you make a decision to go toward health and wellness, it's the the phone that you pick up to to finally make that call weighs 10,000 pounds. So we we can start by honoring that unbelievable decision that they make by being a pleasant person on the phone by being consistently pleasant, by having a smile on her face when they fo- finally walk in the door, mm-hmm. and then continuing um, to challenge them, though, 
as they walk through their path of recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a big piece of it. Is is this is not a field trip? It's it's not a it's not a vacation or a getaway. This is a, a chance for you to change your life, and with all change comes a level of uncomfortability. Mm-hmm. And so if we're consistently pleasant but consistently challenging, you know, there's a talk about radical candor. It's a TED Talk. It's a mm-hmm. widely accepted practice. It started in Silicon Valley about culture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, radical candor is about caring personally about people and challenging them directly. We try and consistently do that with our patients every day. Um, and then I, I would say the biggest piece is that we stay connected with them for a year after they get out of treatment. Mm, we can control that um, because for far too long, people have gotten out of treatment. That plastic bubble's been popped. You're back in the real world. And whether you were struggling with depression, anxiety, uh, you know, alcoholism, heroin abuse, um, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom who's got addicted to Vicodin and you've got a doctor who's willing to write you a new script for it every day and you don't know what to do next. So you go to treatment and then you go back home to that same home living environment. Well, for far too long, that's been the end of the story. Mm-hmm. We can control how long we stay engaged with a person. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do that for a year. And, that's, and that's important for us. Well, I'm, if people out there that have been so um, loyal to my both my radio show and my podcast know my passion for mental performance, mental health, mental illness, and the stigma that comes to this. Yep. Like, it's funny, like, Tiger Woods writes a book on, was well, a book written about his mental game back at the very beginning of his career. And it discussed him using hypnosis and hypnotherapy mm-hmm. to tr- control his thoughts. So and I find a, a really good hypnotherapist who I've actually done a podcast with, and, like, that... That arena, while trying to help, is full of stigma. Oh, sure. And then the athletes don't, once they find out what works for them, they don't want to talk about yeah. what's giving yeah. them the edge. They're trying to keep that to themselves right. Right. so that all the good things that come out of it don't get any publicity because they don't want to give away their secrets. Right. Well, you can look at facilities the same way, kind of like you're looking at the athletes. Yeah. You know, I think we, in, in the United States, we have this, you know, the behavioral health industry is highly competitive, especially private behavioral health. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I've always been of the mindset that if, if we can work together and collaborate on what works and what doesn't work, um, I give it away for free all day. I'm about community um, and I, I want people to be well. Um, the drain on the global economy, they say it's estimated $1 trillion because of mental illness and substance yeah. abuse. I mean, just think about if we really took enough, at the, took the time to share what, we, what we've found, um, not just go well beyond scholarly articles, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, take the time, do a think tank with the leaders in this field and really talk about how we've done things to a positive end, um, and pick up the torch so everybody can be doing it. Look, mm-hmm. there's way, way more people that are struggling than than there are beds to help them. Um, and uh, I, it doesn't make sense to me why we wouldn't collaborate more often. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's that's a funny correlation there. Yeah, so like, I'm always trying to figure out ways to help people get the courage to ask for help and get help. Because, you know, we grew up in an era, our dads would be like, suck it up, kid, mm-hmm. no crying, we, we, we just just get to be man and just get, fight through it. And then enough generations of that created a, a place where we are today where people don't know how to cope with pain. Mm-hmm. 
they don't know how to recognize that struggle actually and conquering struggle is success. Sure. So the fear of failing, the fear of not knowing what to do or how to get help is somewhat paralyzing to a, a vast percentage of the of humans out there. Yeah. I think one of the things that's easy to see on why you guys have been successful is that everybody feels better when they've helped someone else. Oh, without a doubt. It's like, to me, people ask me all the time, Virgil, why didn't you try to play? And I'm like, well, I, I probably or certainly wasn't good enough or I'd be there. But at the end of the day... I don't know. I, I, I saw you the other day. <laughs> but a couple would, nippers in there. I would say that what I learned the most is that at the crossroads of performance, I spent more time caring about others' games and helping them than I cared about locking myself or sequestering myself on the driving range or in the short game area, mm -hmm. taking care of myself only. Yeah. So I'm a coach at heart, and I'm fortunate to be a good player. So when I've watched the best players in the world and coached somebody who reached number six in the world at one point, they, they care too about others, but they're more interested in their own personal quest mm -hmm. to see how good they can get. I got to be my own personal quest to see how good I could get at helping others. Mm -hmm. That's my deal. And I think that that's, the, that's what's important for what it is that you're doing on Journey Pure is this. People who are well or, or supposedly well, people that are working with you, get way more self-esteem and self-image build up by somebody coming in who is struggling and offering them help and showing them the light to feel that to feel better. That one thing is like that fills up your cup every day. Yes, it can be draining to deal with people mm -hmm. that are struggling, but at the end of the day, when you help people get around the corner and change their life, it is the one it might be the greatest feeling of all. No doubt about it. Um so I'll tell you just, you know, this is uh, no secret to people who know me or the community. I've been in recovery for 11 years. Um, my path was was a pretty wild one, and I'll, I'm sure we'll get into it later. But, um, you know, one of the things about a, a recovering man or woman, people who work a 12-step program or people who are um, beyond just abstinent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it goes beyond working a program means and just indicates that you're going beyond just not using, just not drinking. The program itself is all about service and being of service to other people. And the the ironic thing about it, and they say this very openly, and they've pounded this into my head for the last 11 years, is that the the being of service to other people is actually a very selfish um, endeavor because of how it makes you feel Um after the fact, right? That's how the sponsorship program works in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. um, the therapeutic relationship between a therapist and a patient, that's how it works. Um, they give and they get in return. They see the wellness and they get the opportunity to feel that sense of, of, of happiness and joy at looking at a mom who comes into our center who's pregnant, who's addicted to opiates, right? Who's maybe going to lose her child to CPS, to actually see that mom reunited with her child mm -hmm. um, after the time comes and she's remained healthy and well. You know, addiction, mental illness, and you'll come back to the stigma. Stigma, um, we have a really amazing doctor, Dr. Stephen Lloyd, who um, 
who's a former drug czar of the state of Tennessee, but he's our medical director, chief medical director, and he does a talk on on uh, the fact that addiction, mental health illness, these are not moral failings. You know, these are these are clinically recognized illnesses, no different than diabetes, no different than um, asthma. They're chronic. They're never going to go away. Mm-hmm. So the reality that you can just tough it out, like you mentioned, you know, um, that idea, that 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 old idea, and that old norm, that can stop with my generation. You know, when I decided to go into to get to get help myself and be become a recovering man and work a program Mm -hmm. that that coincided with being a recovering man you know i made a decision little to my knowledge to to let all of the systemic family issues that had been inherited over the generations from my great-grandfather all the way down to my mother who i lost to this illness um three years ago um i i decided to let it stop with my generation um, and my children's generation. Yeah. And I was horribly affected by this disease personally, um, emotionally, uh, at home, growing up. Um, but, but the reality is my kids don't ever have to experience that. And the, the lifestyle that they get to live now, while it, it is a modest one, um, is one that is happy, joyous, and free, just like I feel every day in recovery. Yeah. Um, and they get to promote that to their children. So it stops with me. Yeah. And it can stop with anybody if you make a decision to get well. And why is that so scary? Uh, what aspect of it? Why, what, what do you think prevents people? Is it just change, knowing that they have to change? Oh, why is it so scary for them to, yeah, yeah. oh my gosh, you name it. Maybe, um, maybe that mental illness wasn't really a thing that we talked about in our family, other than Aunt Mimi kind of drank a little bit too much, yeah. right? But in actuality, Aunt Mimi died of a cardiac arrest or liver failure from acute cirrhosis. Yeah. You know, that, that's the shit we don't talk about. Yeah. Um, it's the stuff under the rug, right? Yeah. Here's the deal. You sweep enough shit under the rug, one day somebody in your family is going to step on it and all that dust is going to come out and it's going to be out of control. And it's going to be a mess that is beyond cleanup. You can get the help now, but it has to be a decision that you make basically saying fuck all to anybody else who has anything to say about it. Um, But it's scary because it's stigmatized still. We're doing, we're making great strides. You know, I used to work in an organization that they had a wing of the company that was only dedicated to breaking the stigma of addiction. Um, I adored what that organization, that wing of the organization did. Um, And anybody who is working diligently to break down the barriers of talking about mental illness, of talking about the disease of addiction, um, you know how addiction started with a lot of the, the 45, 46-year-old women that we see at our facility? It no. started because they broke their foot skiing. It started because they fell down a set of stairs, um, they slipped on a carpet, broke a rib, and a doctor prescribed them a highly, addicted, highly addictive substance, um, opiates. Um, we're now in a crisis. It doesn't there are no anybody who's listening if you think that that addiction doesn't cross racial lines or socioeconomic lines you're out of your fucking mind yeah it hits everybody we treat doctors lawyers pilots at our facility we treat the indigent in our facility in knoxville moms who barely barely can keep enough money together to pay last month's rent let alone this month's rent Mm-hmm. It it knows no barriers. It knows no boundaries, and so for that reason, 
I realize that the doctor, the pilot, the lawyer might have a harder time talking about it as openly as I do. But um, the reality is it's going to cross any border, any barrier. It's got an open visa, mm-hmm. and it's coming for you, you know, and you're <laughs> just as susceptible as the next person. Yeah. So the reality is, you know, any organization that takes the time to really help break down the barriers, the stigma associated with it, let us talk about it, specifically for our kids, man. Yeah, you know? no kidding. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like it's getting to be an epidemic. It's an epidemic across over almost every age group. But the one that's the saddest is when it affects the like the, the teenagers and the kids. And, you know, I tell people all the time, everybody is struggling with something. So be kind, yeah. number one. And two, recognize that a, a helping hand and a kind word oftentimes can go way further than you ever imagined because mm-hmm. there's just not much out there like that. And let me let me add this too because I feel obliged because we're at a school for adolescents yeah. right now doing this, having this conversation. And, you know, you're an instructor to children. You know, I get to play golf with your kids sometimes yeah. and they're amazing little guys. I have kids. Um, here's the deal. I have a lot of colleagues who entered into this field because of passion, just like I entered this field. Um, I got sober later in life, but they were given the opportunity very early on to get sober. And there's one individual in particular. His dad was the chairman of a Fortune 50 company. Um, He had his first treatment episode when he was 14. Dad didn't participate. Mom didn't participate. Their assumption was, look, I'm just going to send this little guy off to Florida or to this wilderness program or to Utah. He's going to come back. He's going to be jolly, joyous, free, go play with his buddies, be a normal boy, quote unquote. So by about the sixth time that they sent this little guy off, one of my really close friends in this industry, Mm -hmm. by the sixth time they sent him off, the facility that they sent him to had enough wherewithal to say, you know what, let's analyze what you've done so far. Um, Because if you keep doing it, I have a feeling like you're going to keep getting the same result. And if you don't realize that by now, um, we've got much bigger problems. And they said, in order for your son to come to our facility, who is an adult legally at this point, 18 years old, for him legally to come to this facility, you got to come too. You got to come for a week. You got to drop what you're doing for your life in your life. You got to be involved and you got to understand what this actually looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like yeah. to live with someone who's in recovery. Cause you don't have, a, you don't have a clue. Yeah. All you're doing is throwing money at a problem. I've worked with a lot of people who have a lot of money and they have thrown a lot of it at this quote unquote problem, thinking it's a moral failing, thinking, you know, if we just spend enough or we just send them to the nice enough place or you know, but it isn't until they take an active interest in understanding what addiction and mental health actually does to somebody, what it feels like on yeah. a daily basis, do that. does that person ever stand a chance of recovering? It is a family illness. Yeah. If your son or your daughter are struggling, talk about it. Hire a professional, whether it be a clinician, um, have a family session, mm-hmm. make decisions together, um, be open and honest with one another about um, your willingness to participate in their care. Because I guarantee you, a lot of these same family members, if their loved one was struggling with cancer or a, a terminally ill diagnosis, mm-hmm. and listen, unchecked addiction, mental health, it's terminal, terminal. buddy. So um, any of these families, any of these kids struggling with, with any terminal illness, they'd be by their side. Yeah, They'd throw a lot of money at it too, 
but they'd be very active in wanting to know what the path was, what their level of involvement needed to be, mm-hmm. how they could assist. Yeah. It's interesting. It's almost like there's a level of shame. Tons of it. That goes into the mental uh, wellness, health, illness piece, because if they got a heart problem or a brain cancer, you talk it's about not it their all fault. Day. It's not their fault. You're doing fundraisers for it. <laughs> That's right. right. But if, right. if you have to admit uh, that your son is an addict, is that a, uh, maybe that's your fault too. Or, and like people just right, wear it comes the back shame. to this moral failing. Uh, yeah. What if, Oh, you know, and if my, if I'm in my, you know, my Sunday brunch with my girls, how's your son doing? He's great. Look, I'd much rather hear he's struggling. He's really having a hard time right now. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, we're scared. He feels depressed. We're working through it. Um, we've got a good clinician on our side who's going to help work with him every week. Mm-hmm. If it escalates, you know, we've got a plan, but we're supporting him. Yeah. And that's the main thing. You know what would happen? I think there are a couple women or a couple men in that Sunday brunch or, or you know, golf outing, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. who might kind of be taken aback. Yeah. And then I bet you after it, say they'd say, could you give me the name of that clinician? Can you tell me what that plan is? My son, my daughter, yeah. my sister, they're struggling. Yeah. I don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, seeking that professional guidance uh, is one thing. But if people are willing to talk about it more, look, this is way, if it's a, if it's a trillion dollar drain on the global economy, it's way more common than we're letting on. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Do you sense that because you are, and I, and I'll keep it in mind, one of my favorite sentences that I've ever heard was from David Faraday, who's a recovering alcoholic. Mm-hmm. He said, all I have, I'm, I'm just trying to win today. Right. Because my alcoholism is doing push-ups and kettlebell swings, getting meaner, faster, stronger than ever. Because as soon as I put my guard down, it's ready to pounce on me ferociously. Yeah. Do you sense that your success at this job is because you can walk the walk and talk the talk, and you, you, because of your experience personally, you can provide the empathy required when needed and the sternness required when needed. I always call it like you have the ability to offer the Oprah and the Dr. Phil <laughs> whenever necessary. Yeah, so, so I be clear, I'm not a clinician. Mm. Um, I'm very rarely patient-facing mm. um, uh, other than the fact that, you know, what we market to the world and what, what it is that we do is patient facing. That's, yeah. that's the bulk of my patient interaction. Right? Sure. So, um, I think that, uh, addiction, behavioral health, it's a very underprofessionalized field yeah. for the reasons that you just described. You got a lot of people, men and women who have, who have become so unbelievably grateful for the re- the life their recovery has given them mm. that they want to find a way to give back. I'll tell you a brief story. Bef- when I got sober, um, I was a musician. I was fired from a tour. I was on a tour in Denmark and uh, I had worked my entire life to be a musician. And I finally got this great gig, fell off enough stages, charged enough liquor to the leader of the band's room got fired, got flown home. An organization called Music Cares paid for me to go to treatment. Yeah, Music Cares. All right. Music Cares is a great organization. Debbie Carroll, forever grateful to her and, uh-huh. her and the Grammy Foundation for the gift that they gave me. Um, you know, I was published, singer, songwriter. I had work published, so uh-huh. I was able and eligible to attend a facility. I went. I got out. I followed recommendations. 
And, you know, I was recommended that I stayed off the road. Mm. It was a good recommendation. I'm going to take some suggestions for once. So I start producing and writing. And I'm producing a buddy's record. And this guy and I, we had gone to some AA meetings together. And I had known about him before I went to treatment. And I knew he was sober. And uh, he asked me to produce his record. So I'm producing it. And, you know, he kept walking out of the room. And he kept getting on his phone. And I finally had to have this come to Jesus, like, hey, man, I need you involved in this project. We want to get this record done. And, you know, to be really honest, it sounds like you're selling drugs on the phone. Like, dude, we go to, we go to AA together. Like, how is this possible? He's like, dude, I don't sell drugs. I'm a business development representative. I help people get sober. You know, I, I work for a treatment center locally, and I talk about what we do out in the field and people call me asking for help, so I help mm. them. I'm like, holy shit, that's a job? Wow. And that is how I entered the field. So that's a roundabout way of saying, I didn't go to school for this. Um, you know, I went to school, but it certainly wasn't for this. Um, he didn't go to school for being a business development representative. Um, you know, uh, we're largely on the business end of, of a lot of facilities. We're very underprofessionalized. Yeah. Um, but it, I think what carries a lot of us through is the massive amount of empathy that we have for the people that we serve, mm-hmm. um, for the for the people who are in this to really be in this to be a service to others, give them the opportunity to really understand deeply what it is that your facility does yeah. before they walk in the door. Have an obligation to them to be honest and have a have a moral compass that extends itself to them being able to look at your website or talk to your admissions counselors and know exactly what to expect when they walk in the door. So true. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, there's a, there's a massive op- a number of people who work in the behavioral health industry who not only are the president, but they're the client too, so yeah. to speak. Right. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of companies have been successful. Sure. Um, I also think it can be a reason why on the business side, some of them have had a hard time as of late. Um, you know, if it makes sense. There's not a lot of training on the marketing and business development side. Mm-hmm. And I'll raise my hand and say, again, I didn't go to school for this. But like you, I'm a ferocious le- reader, yeah. um, learner, lifelong learner. Um, I would like to do the best at what I'm, what I, what I'm doing when I'm doing it. Yeah. So um, it's, you, the qualification isn't just you got to be sober. You, know, you gotta, you gotta want to learn how to serve people in a in a massive way. Right. Yeah. And in my in my spectrum on the marketing side, I'm really clear about how I can serve people. I think probably what you've also realized is that as soon as you bought into being a learner, the more you learned, the more you realized you didn't know. And the more oh, you just yeah. get you just like, Holly, I need to know more than this. <laughs> I can't believe what I didn't know now though. It just keeps going. No doubt. It about never it. stops. No, it doesn't. It's interesting because I love music like so I I can't play an instrument. I can't sing, but music runs my life. And so that you being a musician, you know, there's so many spectacular uh, musicians that have died uh, drug-related. And it's so funny, some of the greatest ones, all are the, the same age, 28 years old. Um, and there's a lot of things that could weave into that, like Saturn returns. You know, every every 28 years, Saturn comes back around. Mm-hmm. And it's a, every 28 years, you go through a massive change in your life. And it just so happens that that particular group of people that didn't make it uh, weren't willing to change or didn't have the the education or the help required. Mm -hmm. 
music's such a great thing, and you being in the industry for a while, it's almost like you're you're expected to party. You're expected <laughs> to rock out uh, to all hours of the night. And then I've also right. talked with Joe Don Rooney from Rascal Flats, and he says, and of course, I'm always fascinated to talk with him because for a window of time, they were the most famous band in the world. And they're going and playing concerts from 40, 50, 60,000 people. Sure. And that energy coming back, people screaming your songs back at you. A two-hour and 20-minute show, and it's like full-blown electricity. He says, I couldn't go to sleep until 7 or 8 o'clock in the morning because there's, you're just yeah, so you're hyped humped. up. You're, you're, pi- you're, you're, you're hyped up. You're pumped. I mean, like... Listen, I, I think I think there <laughs> there also exists a stigma that it's almost like a pre qualification that you have to party your ass off to to be a musician. Yeah. But I will say, you know, <laughs> I uh, coming back to my story, just you know, I try and relate it to me and mm-hmm. make it deeply personal. Sure. Um, but um, you know, <laughs> man, I had gotten sober. I had strung together like just with the skin of my teeth, whitest of knuckles, I had strung together three months before I went on this European tour with this artist. And my sponsor at the time begged me not to go. He's like, I'm going to strongly suggest that you do not do this. Um, but that's like, dude, I, there's no way I'm putting my life on hold to not do this. This is what I've worked my, my butt off to do. Mm-hmm. No sooner did I get on the plane, did, did the tour manager hand me a Xanax so I had a nice sleep. You know, now granted, they don't know that I'm a raging addict and alcoholic mm-hmm. who can't stop if I start. Um, I have, I have, you know, I have this geneticism about me where I have the phenomenon of craving. Once I feel a little good, I crave feeling a lot of good, mm-hmm. and then my body doesn't stop. That's how addiction works, right? So, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so within five minutes of being on a plane, I'm off to the races again. And I did not stop using for a week straight. Wow. I fell off almost every stage. I made an ass of myself and everybody around me, um, you know, it, to the point where it was, it was impossible to move forward. But, you know, what's really interesting is there are a ton of organizations out there that support people in any field, whether you're a union employee and you're working with the members assistance program or you're a musician and you have a brotherhood, a sisterhood of music cares. There are organizations out there that help you exist as a sober man, sober woman, sober dad, sober mom, um, in whatever field or profession you work in. Mm -hmm. Granted, some are much more challenging than others. Um, but, uh, they they do exist, mm-hmm. and of course, there's always the brotherhood of Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics sure. Anonymous. When so, this is an incredible story of success and perseverance past a place. But I'm uh, for people that out there, they're always wanting to know, like they always want to see, like that that place where this guy's had it had a more difficult ride than me, and if he can do it, I can do it. What was the lowest point of the lows that like? Maybe it was a crossroads moment, like, I got to get better or I'm going to die. What was that moment that steered you toward this this great path that you're on right now? Oh, my gosh. You know, we talk about cumulative versus singular event, right? Yeah. Um, my life was a, was a series of, of cumulative, um, I guess I'd call them cumulative traumas. You know, I'm, I'm the byproduct of a family of origin story that started long before me. Mm-hmm. 
my grandfather's mother was an alcoholic, deep, deep alcoholic. My, my grandfather was. My mother was. I mentioned three years ago I lost her to alcoholism and substance use disorder. Um, for me, man, I, you know, I... The darkest, darkest time of my life, obviously, was minutes before I decided to pick up the phone. And, you know, for anybody who's gone through an event where they've decided... I want to live. I have a lot to live for. Um, and I have a lot to contribute to this world. Um, whoever's made that decision, they know how dark that hour is right before that decision. Mm -hmm. So the minute before I made that choice to decide that I was worthy of being in this world and contributing positively to it, um, you know, I took a gun out of my drawer and I put it to my head and I said that this is it. Um, I didn't want to do this anymore. Um, I loaded the clip and it was, it was, it was the moment of truth. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I didn't have a spiritual awakening or any white lightning hit me mm -hmm. and uh, any epiphany. I just put it down. I set it in my lap and instead of doing that for whatever reason, I picked up my flip phone, uh, I called my tour manager and just broke down and said, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what to do. Um, and I need help. Yeah. And those words, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm powerless. Mm. And I need help. Surrender. My life is unmanageable. That's the first step mm -hmm. in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what the fuck to do. And I'm okay with that right now. Yeah. And I know that you're going to be of more sound mind to help me. And I want to, I want to ask for you to help me, please. Mm -hmm. my, my life is, I'm powerless over drugs and alcohol. My life is unmanageable. That was when I really believed the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous. That was when I really knew that was it. Wow. That's powerful. And I went to treatment and I got better and I watched a lot of people around me get worse. Yeah. Um, but like Faraday said, man, it is a day at a time. We have a problem, I think. This is my biggest problem 11 years into sobriety now. It's not drinking. It's not drugging. It's about, did I treat my wife with with unbelievable amount of respect today? Did I tell her how much I care and love her? Did my kids feel loved? Have I told them that I love them? Do they feel safe? Do they feel protected? Do they feel happy? Are they having a good time in general? Um, am I living in the present? That's the question. Mm -hmm. That's the thing I struggle with because I'm a man of more. I want more. I've got a taste of the good life. Early on when I was first just a baby in sobriety out of treatment, dude, having a bed to sleep on, on the a mattress on the floor in a room that I could barely afford was a dream come true. It was an absolute dream. Fast forward 11 years, I have a house, two paid-off cars, a job I absolutely love, my unbelievably talented, beautiful wife, two incredible children, and yet I live with this disease of more. And so I want more of it. Mm -hmm. I want a new house. Right? Yeah. I want more money in the bank. I want more of a feeling of security. I want more respect. Um, and I, the problem isn't that I want more of it. It's that I'm too impatient to wait for it yeah. or to work for it. 
it's and I'm okay with admitting that today. I'm mm-hmm. okay with saying to you very openly, my problem is not drinking and using today. My problem is living right here, right now in this moment, and not thinking about that house that I'm trying to buy down in College Grove. Mm-hmm. Right? That's right. It's about being being in the moment and enjoying it. Because man, I'm never getting this one again. Yeah. And if I take it for granted, I'm gonna miss a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I work really diligently now, trying to trying to do that, trying to be present, and be really really grateful for what I have, um, and whatever else comes, it's just icing on the cake. Yeah, the the power of now by Eckhart Tolle is so was one of the big shifts for me, and and because I'm I'm in the same boat as you is that I'm I have a an insatiable appetite for more. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly trying to be better than I was yesterday. And there's nothing wrong with that. No. But if you're not spending enough time enjoying the present, you miss all the great things that you've been working so hard to, to do yeah. in your mindset of trying to achieve more. Oh, yeah. There's that balance. You know, There's nothing wrong with trying to constantly be better, but it doesn't do you any good if you're not spending any time in the present. Right. And are you being gluttonous about it? Yeah. Is it all more? Mm-hmm. Right? It's not... More is not necessarily all of what you need. That's exactly You know, like, I don't... (laughs) That is exactly right. I could tell you right now, I could live out the rest of my life with exactly what I have, and I'd have exactly what I need. Mm -hmm. Probably more. Yeah, absolutely. Probably more than I need. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that the human condition, I think, is kind of geared toward what's next. That's right. The latter isn't the problem. It's how fast I want to climb it. Mm -hmm. And if I don't take the time to at least fucking just honor how hard it was to get here. Yeah. Dude, I mean, enjoy, it's enjoy a crazy the journey, thing. baby. Enjoy the journey because right. the destination is just a, a, a one <laughs> little spot. It's, a pa- it's, <laughs> it's like literally a layover. Yeah, that's you know? exactly right. It's a layover, man. To the next, now what? Yeah, exactly. That's right. So, and it's interesting because that then leads us to golf. Because golf is the power of now and being able to stay in sure. the present on the shot. When did golf become the major force that it is in your life? Because, I mean, obviously, you're a low handicap golf. What's your handicap now? Two? One? Is it one? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, a great player, got all, but much like life, golf requires a level of diligence and work and, and patience. Yeah. And you go out and you shoot the 67, and you have to fight the fact that that's not your new average. Right. That's just your potential. Right. Not your average. And that is the same struggle. It's so funny you say that. So I have my career low this year. Uh-huh. Hayden let me borrow his Nike method after I was having to come apart on the putting green with my uh-huh. spider putter. <laughs> and I went out and shot a 66 well, nice. for the first time in my life. Um Three under on the front, three under on the back, and I walked home. And you know what I shot the following four rounds? Like 81, <laughs> 82, 79. Because I had this expectation that I should just always birdie one and two and birdie three. You know, like wh- whatever I did that yeah. day is what I – yeah, so I don't know who said it. I think it was maybe Nicholas that golf is the great microcosm of life. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. That's why I love this game. Yeah. I took a long, long hiatus. And I'm, you know, I'm wearing my, my US Open Pebble Beach 2019 shirt. And I got a little story about that little tearjerker. Uh-huh. But well, <laughs> I love golf because it is the great microcosm of life. Everything I just talked about, living in the present, 
being here, being in this moment, being grateful for the fact that I shot a 67, but knowing that it could all be taken away from me tomorrow with an 82, being okay with that, um, enjoying being outside, enjoying the fact that, you know, I've gotten to this, this, this level, to the opportunity to actually be at a private place to play golf. What a lucky bastard I am. Like never in a million years did I think I would get that, let alone does, you know, did I ever believe I deserved it? Mm-hmm. It's all about being right here in this moment right now and just enjoying the hell out of it, regardless of what you shoot. And you know what? Ironically enough, <laughs> it's usually when I play the best. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like, I, for my own personal game, plus what I've watched on tour, it's the days in which you hit it bad on the range, things just don't feel good, Yeah, and you, you surrender your expectations – and you just you just go play one shot at a time. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so I have so many like my my last victory was the 2008 Screaming Eagle Classic at Gaylord mm-hmm. Opryland Resort, and it was designed to, to benefit the soldiers for the first airborne, the Screaming Eagles, mm-hmm. right? So the first part of the day is set up to coach. The, the military guys that are there to play. So we did that all the way up until like 10 minutes before we teed off. So I didn't get a chance to hit many balls, but the balls that I did hit were angry hooks. <laughs> Very angry <laughs> hooks. So I I'm going the out there hook. and I'm playing, I'm playing with a former tour player, three-time national blind golfer champion, Dave Metter, and a, and a Black Hawk pilot. So I get up on the first hole. It's the third hole. And I'm, I've hooked everything violently. My long-standing problem of the hooks. So I'm like, I'm 170 yards. I normally hit nine iron at the time. So I'm just gonna pick. I'm gonna choke up on an eight. I'm gonna swing like, I'm gonna swing like Payne Stewart looks, <laughs> and hit it to three inches. Yeah. Birdie. Good. Go. go to the next hole. And I'm like, I don't want to hit driver. So I'm like, I'm just gonna hit this. Five wood, just put it in play. Put it in play. Nothing sexy about it. Hit an eight iron to a foot. Birdie. Wow, great. <laughs> and I I hit it inside of eight feet the first ten holes. Oh my god. And literally it was birdie, 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 eagle, par, birdie, birdie. That's how I started. And I'm and I'm just in this weird First of all, I'm playing with a, a national champion blind golfer who is so grateful for everything he gets. Right. And every shot before he sets up to it, you hear his word for gratefulness for the people that are helping him line up, which is the former tour player and myself, and just the encouragement. And he took me out of my own personal desire to be something. Right. And just enjoy playing with the greatest blind golfer on the planet. And how lucky I am to be able to see what I'm doing. Yeah. He's left to hear it and feel it. Yeah. In some ways, I don't hear much and I don't feel much when I'm playing. That day, I chose to. I played so bizarrely awesome that I look back on that day, I'm like, I give all the credit to Dave Metter because he took me out of my own original environment. And then my really, my favorite story to tell is a girl named Megan Greenhan. She played at Vanderbilt. Mm Mm-hmm. We're at Q school, final round of Q school. And she starts her session, fat, shank, (laughs) shank, 
Like heel shank grounder to the third baseman. <laughs> Fat shank shank. And I, I had to make this really, really difficult call. Stop hitting balls. Right. Stop. She's full-fledged, massive panic attack. I'm like, what we're going to do, we're going to go find the What's hardest shot. What's going on, Romeo? <laughs> we're we're going to go play the hardest shot we can find around the green until you can soften your hands and yeah. remember how to find it. So we hit this like spectacularly downhill shot to a tight pin, and I just made her like learn how to s- softly hold the golf club mm-hmm. and find it. So she is madder than four hornets at me as we go to the first tee because she hasn't even hit a ball in the club face yet, minus a couple of chips. She shoots a bogey-free 67 and gets her card. Oh, my gosh. And she literally is in tears because she can't believe that she's accomplished it with that warm-up. What just happened to Justin Thomas? Yeah. He just talked about it. He said it was the worst range session he's ever had in his entire life. And he goes out and what? he won. The, he yeah, won. He won. I mean, it's crazy. And that's like so expectations. Mm-hmm. And life expectations and golf expectations, they mirror each other. And expectations are a, a proverbial cancer yeah. to life. Mm-hmm. When when you think about what golf means to you and, and all the things that you've done, what's the most special thing about golf? You know, you mentioned the 2019 USO. Talk to oh, us about dude, that. To by far the greatest golf experience of my life was taking my dad to the US Open this past year. Uh, so f- interesting story. So we... Uh, I grew up playing golf. Mm. My dad's my dad was a phenomenal is a phenomenal golfer. He's almost he's 67, 68 now. Um, you know, he still shoots 72, 74. Mm. Um, doesn't play as much, but still a great golfer, great striker of the golf ball. And he's who taught me growing up. He's who lent me the passion for the game and then it became my own. Yeah. You know, um and uh he helped me see some natural potential, some natural talent. And uh, I never really worked too deeply at it. I played high school and a little college stuff. Mm. And then I just let it go by the wayside and things became more important. Drugs, alcohol, all, mm. that, all the partying. Um, and certainly music, which there was nothing unhealthy about that. And I took a you know, 12-year hiatus from golf. Um, and I subsequently, because this was our primary connection point, my father and I, Golf was the thing that brought us together. It was the thing that united us. Mm-hmm. It was the thing we saw eye to eye on. It was where we had fun. Um, outside of golf, we didn't have too much fun. We had a cordial relationship, but uh, there wasn't much to it. Mm-hmm. But when we were on the golf course, we were having a good time. And I always m- remember those moments with my dad. But, um, you know, the guy was my swing hero growing up. I mean, he really was phenomenal. He was the club champ all the time. So I looked up to him from the golf perspective, but I took this 10-year, 12-year hiatus, and honestly, because we didn't have that connection point anymore, we didn't talk. And Mm. I think we went eight years without speaking a word to each other. Wow. Yeah. Um, A lot of anger, a lot of bitterness set in, a lot of resentment, things that you have to work through in early recovery. But after a year of me being sober, you know, I started working through some of those resentments, and I, I also needed like a healthy hobby again. So I decided I was going to pick up golf and I went out to McCabe and I shot, you know, whatever I shot. And, um, it took me about a year to feel like I knew how to swing a golf club again. And, um, I remember I, I broke 80 for the first time, um, on my second year playing golf and without any hesitation, without even a plan to do it, he was the first person I called. 
I called him. I hadn't talked to him in eight or nine years. Wow. He picked up the phone, and we started talking golf like nothing had changed. And we have talked every day since that day Beautiful. about golf. Um, and we have, we've built a, a – you know, it comes back to expectations, you know. Yeah. You want this guy in your life to be this, ta- this giant of morality and – um, you know, just help you with, with understanding what life is all about. And, you know, you have this expectation of him being the Danny Tanner dad from TGI Friday that you grew, you know, and he's, he's just doing the best that he can. I mean, the dude moved out of his house when he was 13. What the fuck does he know yeah. about being a dad? That's he knows right. how to play golf yeah. and he likes me playing golf with him. So we have this connection. We, all of a sudden, you know, we're talking every day about golf. Well, I tell this story to Eric Anders Lang over a uh, little, um, you know, Instagram post, he asked everybody what what connected you and another person about golf, and I tell the story, and he said, you know, he sent me a message back, he said I was really touched by your story. I want to send you and your dad to the U.S. Open this year. Oh wow! And so we flew out there. Um, he gave us tickets. You know, um, my buddies happened to be out there. They had a house, and uh, we played four rounds of golf: Poppy Hills, Pasa Tiempo, Black Horse, and um, it just, it just had an unbelievable time. I mean, we were standing on 18 watching Gary Woodland, who's one of my favorites win it. Yeah. Um, it was just amazing. Pebble beach has got its own level of majesticness to it. Dude. And I was standing on 17 watching Gary hit that nipper off the green. Oh, that was so good. Oh, was just crazy. That was the shot of, that was the shot of the tournament right there. Cause it was kind of still in flux there. Cause Kepka still had a chance. Mm-hmm. And then he hit that, that poor shot on a par three. And Kepka's in the play in the par five, and like here it could be a two shot swing or a three yeah. shot swing. Well, then Kepka doesn't make the eagle or the the birdie, and Gary Woodland hits this amazing nipping chip off the green surface. You should have heard everybody around us just chirping him. I mean, just what the hell's he doing? He's throwing it away. I can't believe he's going to do this. What a stupid. Even my dad was like, "This is the dumbest thing." I've ever seen anybody do, you know, and then he just gets up with all the confidence of a bull and just nips that thing. Oh, such a great <laughs> shot. I feel like it checked on the downslope. I mean, yeah. In, unbelievable. So anyways, that, that golf experience, you know, is something I'll never forget. And it, again, it really comes back to the expectations of yourself and the people in your life. You know, my dad is a, is an amazing guy. He, he's a, he's a warm, kind person, mm-hmm. but you know, he's never going to be the guy that, tells you he loves you, picks you up when you're down, you know, uh, he, he just is who he is. And yeah. my expectation of this man um, needs to meet reality. And we got to find the common ground. It just so happened to be golf. Yeah. It always was, probably always will be. And, uh, you know, I get to love him in that vacuum. And it's very special to have a relationship sure. with him um, when, by all intents and purposes, we could have gone another 20 years and maybe not spoken. Yeah. I think you just nailed on something that I spend my time talking to these kids about here is that everybody in the world has good in them. Even oh, the yeah. worst, even the most vicious criminal. Mm-hmm. If you can find what that good is and stay in that conversation with that person, you're going to live a life full of happiness because you recognize yeah. the goodness in everyone. Yeah. And as soon as you give up the expectations of what that person should, could be to you, the better off you are. Yeah. So the fact that you found that common ground now gives you this great relationship. And golf is not some petty conversation point. It's a mirroring 
piece of life yeah. that you get a chance to learn lessons because he's able to provide you the lessons that you seek while talking about this awesome game called golf. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how intentional he was about it growing up, about helping me try and stay calm mm-hmm. in a high school match or whatever it might have been. But, you know, the lessons were there. We just, the delivery was a little bit different than maybe some dads would have given yeah. it or what my expectation of how a dad would deliver it yeah. would be. So true. Um, yeah. But there, you know, that I will say there is good in everybody, but if they're not going to show it to you, don't let them be an energy vampire. Move on. Oh, yeah. No Move doubt on. About it. Move on. That's so true. Well, as we shift out of the things that got you to where you are today, we shift into things that help recharge your batteries. And one of them, well, as the studies that I've seen and and gone through, generally speaking, the things that recharge you are the things that a lot of like-minded people get together to do. Mm -hmm. Whether it's a concert, everybody's talking about their favorite band, you go into uh, your favorite football team, basketball team, baseball team, go into a game or bringing up the like-mindedness where you're involved in a huge amount of people feeling the same thing as an energy charger. You talked about your love for music. What are your major influences for music? You know, I grew up uh, as a classical musician. I studied classical piano from the time I was about three until I was 18. Um, I got really heavily into jazz, uh, more specifically like bebop era jazz Mm -hmm. um, and jazz guitar. So guys like Joe Pass, um, Borelli Legreen, who's got certainly more of like a Latin influence. And, um, you know, when I went to college, that's one of my two majors. My my mother major was, um, and I said mother major because my mom, you know, it's just made me get my business major. But um, I majored in jazz performance, jazz guitar and composition. And so... um, you know, I got, I have my Miles Davis phase. I have my Borelli Legreen phase. I've got my Pat Metheny phrase, uh-huh. phase. Um, so I love all those guys. On the on the rock side, um, you know, Jeff Buckley was really huge for me. Uh, Rufus Wainwright, uh, just how how airy these guys were. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I I appreciate really great musicianship. So that's why I kind of always ended up more favoring the jazz side because there's such a technical component, such a virtuosic component to it. Um, But to be honest with you, like nowadays, I listen to just hardcore, straight-up pop music, Uh like guilt, total guilty pleasure pop music. (laughs) Because it, it, you know, like I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to to like explode my brain Uh on my ride home from work. Like I will listen to Kim Petras. Like anything Dr. Luke comes out with, I'll listen to that. Especially like hitting balls. It's like one of my favorite things to do to recharge. Just like turn on unbelievably guilt, guilt ridden. Like if my friends heard me listen to this, I'd be embarrassed. Pop music <laughs> while I'm, while I'm like, no one knows though. Cause I got my beats I got, on. I got your beats on. And just hitting balls. You know, I love doing that. Um, you know, recently we took a couple buddies to a trip, uh, to the cashers in North Carolina. We played mountaintop, um, mm. played, um, champion Hills and Trulian and, just a lot of mountain golf and and dude that was a recharger for me for sure we had a a wonderful time a great golf experience with great really close friends who share the same affinity for the game that i do in the sense that you know they recognize it as a microcosm of life and we're all out there trying Mm -hmm. not to let bad shots beat us Mm -hmm. and just stay positive in an unbelievably beautiful environment and it's 
it's really quick to let a, do- a round of golf that costs five hundred dollars be ruined by a couple bad golf shots. Yeah. You know, we had we all walked into it with the same mentality. Yeah. And and you know, there's always that one guy in the group who's banging clubs or acting a fool. You know, being around people like that and experiencing great golf that's a recharger for sure. Yeah, there's you know, I'm a big into the to flow state, understanding the the highest performance levels of the brain. Mm-hmm. And there's now there's so much information out there that we're just learning about like how to access it. And golf doesn't provide many outlets to flow state like surfing or mountain biking, the dangerous sports do because right. of how attentive the deepest recesses of your brain have to be attuned to where your feet are or your balance sensors or you could die. Mm-hmm. But environment and like the theater of <laughs> mountaintop a- yeah. Oh, and the what golf a great court. way to, that's a great way to describe so it. So like you just get like, you get sucked into the wowness of yeah. externalizing your life, which is taking in the beauty of so many things that are around you, not the, the, you know, the, the so close view, right. internal view of you and the golf ball. Mm-hmm. You took it all in. Well, you try to, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's the goal. You know, when, when I go to a, to an all timer, for example, like, you know, if I if I ever get whenever I play TPC Sawgrass, one of my favorite courses, mm-hmm. um, you know, if certain mount, mountaintop certainly, um, there's a all men's <laughs> like it or like it or leave it. There's still an all men's uh, golf club in Palm Springs that we go to every once in a while that that I just absolutely am obsessed Which with. One? You know, I'm trying to remember. I'm blanking on the name at this moment. Um, it's Oh my gosh, we do it once a it's year. Not old Palm. Is it Old Palm? No, it's like Old Palm, and it's in the same neighborhood as Old Palm. Oh. And I guarantee you've played it. Um, uh, for I, some, I, know, I think I know which one you're talking about. I can't think of the my name. My buddy's dad's a member, yeah. and we we go once a year. It's it's beautiful, you know. And so I try really, really diligently to not be as focused on the shot as I am just being here and enjoying the fact that I'm with friends who are having a good time sharing this great experience together. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't get to play here every day, so let's try and soak it all in. One of the guys that works for me, I'm going to give him a plug for a second. He's going to get a kick out of this. His name is Stedman Nall. And when I first met Stedman, um, he, he does outside sales for us. He's just one of those infectious personalities, you know, these people who you just love to be around because they're so unbelievably positive. They have so much gratitude for the things that they have and what life's given them. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's one of my greatest friends to play golf with because it's impossible to not have a great time around the guy. And it's also <laughs> so unbelievably exposing when you're acting like an idiot for hitting a bad shot and you're, you know, cursing or banging a club. And this guy's over here just smiling, like looking at the leaves changing colors. Yeah. Like, you know, it's it's uh, it's great being around those. Those kind of people bring you up, oh, you know. No so I try and spend it. a lot of time with people like him. Um, because it, it really helps you live in the present, and that's what I, f- I struggle with, right? That's my world's greatest struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, it probably will be for a long time. Uh, so I try and, try and that's also a recharge, man. It, it, it's good to be around guys like that. Yeah, no question. Yeah. What's your favorite concert you've ever been to? I remember being, uh, there's a guy named Jamie Cullum. You know, his music's okay, but he's got a great stage presence, really amazing um, live performer. And I saw him at the 930 Club in Washington, D.C., which is where I grew up. Um, and I just, it was amazing. He just had the whole whole place by the palm of his hands. Everybody adored his music. They were just screaming it back at him. 
and it was a smaller venue, so mm. that was that was really special. Um, being out on the road, you know, I had a band called Parachute Musical, and we weren't anything too hot to trot, but you know, we did get to play with some really cool artists, and um, I loved this band, Modern Skirts, and we played with them. We opened for them in Athens. Can't remember the name of the club, but like REM had come out to see this band play. Mm. Um, They're an Athens band, and we we're yeah. in the backstage, and we decided to mosey on out and listen to them. And that was one of the one of the really like just unbelievable indie band experiences that I ever had was listening to them play in front of their hometown, in front of you know six or seven hundred people. Huh. Um, so it's just some kind of obscure ones, but you know, um, some of my <laughs> I remember being like in the middle of nowhere. Um, uh, Texas with a band at a house show that we were touring with called Modern uh, uh, called Winter Sounds and you know that was a great great live experience and it was in front of like 30 people yep. you know um, just it's just some really random ones that maybe not everybody would appreciate but I got to live it with these guys yeah. and it was a special time for me so yeah I've seen so many concerts in my life I just totally love music and for the longest time I've been on the harder side of rock mm -hmm. and I've also the melancholy side too. Yeah. I, I, I really dug Pearl Jam both in its melancholiness and it's rocking. I like tunes. some Pearl Jam for sure. And, um, I love tool. I'm a big tool fan. Like to that's like they're one, two and three for me. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, when I think of like small concerts, I small saw three eleven. <laughs> <laughs> before they were big in Starkville, Mississippi. That's amazing. In a little club. Wow. And that that was like when the, the fusion of rap and rock got together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So sure. them and maybe a band you've even heard of, they're from New Jersey called Shooty's Groove. No, but there was another band that was in Jersey like at that same time. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the same idea as what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, so like same, Shooty's same Groove opened for 311 in this pretty big yeah small you know i was like 311 never heard of them and it was just before their big hits came out yeah and i'm like they were so good and that was powerful i've seen bruce springsteen in a really Oof. small intimate sitting before the ghost of tom joad the album came out he did a little private show in waukegan up in chicago wow and and the, the guy who That's was something. uh our accountant was also the sound manager of the world uh, the World Center in Chicago, and right. he got tickets. He goes, yeah, I can't tell you who's going to be here. But we're going to go see a guy named the Ghost of Tom Joad. And I'm like, sounds like a terrible situation. No, you're going to love it. Trust me. So we go up there. We're in this bar. I mean, literally, it's a bar. And it was Springsteen. Damn. Playing the, all the acoustic songs off that album. That's pretty great. I'm like, this is unbelievable. Like, those are the kind of shows yeah. that you never forget. I saw Eddie Vedder at the Ryman by himself. Unbelievable. That it, was a couple years ago. Yeah, maybe yeah. 11 or 12. Yeah. Right into the wild when that soundtrack came out. He wrote all uh -huh. the music for that. He came here. It wasn't that long after the flood. Yeah. He came here and it was spectacular. Yeah. See, I, I think I might sound good at the Ryman. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think anybody could, man. Um, I saw Shovel and Rope uh, play at, uh, I think it was Red Door East. I would opened up for them and I had never seen them play before. I just heard their music. Man, it's a hub, husband and wife duo. Just fucking crazy. And now they're they're blowing up. They're massive now, and yeah. um, you know, really popular, and and they deserve it. They're incredible. But yeah, just a lot of little shows like that. I've always really, I just, I, those are the ones that I remember. Some yeah. of the big ones I forget for some reason. It's so fun because like now, 
I don't go to many live shows. I mean, I got me I got two, I got two little kids. I mean, they're not little. I mean, they're 14 and 11. But I don't like. Yeah. It's not something I'm I'm actively taking them to yet. Right. Right. And and I certainly haven't did it when they were younger. Yeah. So I stopped that the whole club scene kind of mm-hmm. music, and I don't really follow what's coming up. You know, I don't really know what's. Yeah, coming man, up. I don't either. You know, I. I just kind of enjoy music in my own weird little way right, right yeah. now, and and I'm cool with it. Like, dude, just silly pop music. It's yeah. just, it's great. Love it. <laughs> so it works for me. No you know? Favorite sports team. So you have a favorite sport outside of golf that you've always gravitated towards. Team. Uh, yeah. So my son is a really really avid soccer player. He plays for Tennessee Soccer Club. Mm-hmm. Um, he's played with them ever since he was a little guy. Um. I've always enjoyed soccer, but I've never been really into it. So, you know, uh, I'd say Liverpool. Uh, mm. He's a humongous Liverpool fan. You walk into his room, it's like a shrine to Steven Gerrard. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we just started participating with him because he was mm. into it. Then we got into it. So I'd say soccer is probably my favorite sport outside of golf and, and watching uh, watching Liverpool play, who's on a run right now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. they're on a tear. Um an amazing you know, talk about incredible coaching um yeah Jurgen Klopp is like yeah it's just an unbelievably positive dude yeah you know and, and that's infectious it just pays off it's so fascinating I, I take the all-time greats of players out of the mix the coaches make the big difference yeah I mean obviously yeah. Michael Jordan could have won championships with me coaching and <laughs> and so could probably Kobe or LeBron and Peyton but there's Ma- not Peyton a lot Manning. of those guys. But there's not a lot of those guys. But for every one of those... Because they also have to be leaders, too. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. But for every one of those guys, there's the stories of how great John Wooden was and mm-hmm. Bill Parcells was. And yeah. All these. So the coaching piece is so... So it never goes away. And I'm, I just got done doing a podcast with Neil O'Donnell, the, the former quarterback of the Titans. Okay. And he, he talked about... I just asked him, what was it like... Because he was coached by literally like a who's who list of coaches from Parcells to Chuck Knoll mm. to Jeff Fisher to uh, Mike Tomlin with the Steelers. Yeah. All these great coaches. I said, how hard is it to coach awesome players already? And he goes, hey, man, when I was the best I've ever been, I was still a 12-year-old kid in the huddle. I still needed to be coached. I still wanted to learn better about what I need to do, how to recover just better. Everybody is dying to be coached. Mm-hmm. There's just not many people that can do it. Right. And I thought that was a fascinating. Yeah, I've always thrived in an, in an environment where I can I can get some one on one time with somebody, and and actually work on something I'm excited to work on. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I'm at a point in my career now where you know I I really need to spend the time and money on an executive coach. I, I know that about myself. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, uh, you know, reading is certainly, you know, uh, you can do a ton of self-learning, but there's a difference between that and then there's somebody helping you stay accountable to what you're learning yeah. and implementing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, some of these as- some of the, some aspects of my life, like I've always loved having a golf instructor when I can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, I was working with Josh Bevel for a little while and um, that was a lot of fun, you know, when I was just getting my swing back and then... Mm-hmm. Um, I see my son work privately with a with a soccer coach at TSC and how much he gets out of that and you know mm-hmm. that's that's uh there's just something to be said about it. I don't I don't know that everybody loves it. Um you know there's this musician I follow Jacob Collier who's one of 
couple Grammys now. I think he's like all of 21, but he's learned everything on his own and that's his preferred learning style. Mm-hmm. Um, I do better in an environment where someone's kind of telling me to, what to do and how to do it mm-hmm. and helping me stay accountable to, to the outcome, you know, yeah, or at least the, the, the method. Yeah. I've always found it fascinating. You know, Prince, Prince learned how to play every instrument on its own. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, what kind of a freak talent is that? Yeah. And I could argue that maybe he's one of the 10 greatest guitar players of all time and he doesn't get the credit he deserves yeah. for the guitar player that he was, but he's unbelievable at everything that he did oh yeah he was one of the greatest artists of, of my lifetime for sure my, my first absolutely my the first guy that supercharged my testosterone was purple rain <laughs> i was maybe 12 or i was 12 ish i think and i was just starting to hit my stride and like there you go you know purple rain let's go crazy when doves cry he, he, <laughs> he spoke, spoke to, to you, he man. spoke to me and then he spoke to you at a vulnerable time he came around the corner and handed the baton to axel rose yeah there you go <laughs> axel really took it from there for there a while so fascinating what's the greatest sporting event you watched live oh oh u.s open by far oh u.s open by yeah far. just recently you know i'd never i'd been to a couple live like i used to do the score bearer at the kemper open in dc oh yeah. and i did that for like freddie at couples yeah it was at avenel yep, yep. And I, you know, I did the score bear for like Stuart Appleby and Freddie Couples, and mm-hmm. like, you know, they give you a ball or something. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, but like, I was ex- exhausted. Like, I was just like a ten-year-old kid carrying this giant sign, walking Avenel, which was like pretty hilly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's the last live golfing event I had been to, and then I went to the U.S. Open. It was just incredible. We just had the best time, man. I mean, at Pebble, walking Pebble, um, we had cool passes, so we got these kind of Mm-hmm. get to walk in special spots and um you know that was just great it was great talk to me about posse tiempo what was that experience like alistair Al- mckenzie yeah i'm an Al- i'm an alistair mckenzie nerd yeah Love dude it. um i gotta tell you i could play i could play that course every day for the rest of my life really it's that yeah. good i was one of the very few it's, that i haven't played yet that i want to play it's like 5700 yards 5,800 from the back, maybe. No kidding. I didn't realize it's it was It's painful, man. I mean, it's it's pure pain. You know, three-tiered greens, fast as ice. Um, you know, you have to have one of the great creative putting minds of the world to two-putt every hole, truly. Yeah. I mean, or you got to stick it within a foot, which means you have to know the shit out of that golf course yeah. to, to hit it in the right spot to even put it remotely close. Because even if it... It's a one check, one bounce checker. It, the ball's going to roll in some direction as soon as it hits the green. There just aren't flat spots. Um, tighter fairways. Uh, it's shapely, um, you know, and it's poa everywhere, which is interesting for me. Yeah. But, um, man, I had one of the just just a great time playing that golf course. Yeah. It's and, so fun. And most people don't realize – because that area is condensed with a ton of great golf. Oh, but yeah. the Ford Ord courses, the black course and the bayonet course, are unbelievably good golf courses. And you Bayonet play- was in rough shape when I went. Is that right? Yeah, it was in really rough shape when I went. Um, but it was a great layout. We had a lot of fun. Yeah, and you played dark horse too? No. No, you only played the bayonet course. No, we. I get it confused because uh, I'm thinking about what it looked like on, when I entered the uh, – horrific score on my gin um it was like no i think we did we just played bayonet, bayonet. yeah because they used to have they used to have the q school out there the final stage out there. okay that's a beast of a golf course man that's all you want in a bag of chips from the well, back tees 
So we played Pasa, we played Bayonet, we played Pacific Grove. Oh, how good was that? Pacific Grove was like the dog track of all dog tracks, front nine, and the greatest back nine of all time. That's what I hear. <laughs> it's like of, of... the most... Dude, I can't even begin to explain it to you. I mean, like, this is not a knock on McCabe. I love McCabe. Yeah. I will play McCabe. Me too. I like McCabe a lot. So it's not a knock. But it's a it's a it's a okay muni, right? Yeah. They do a good job for for how much play that place gets. It was like take McCabe and divide it by ten. And one of those tenths is what the front nine a Pacific Grove was. At Pacific Grove was. It was really just nutty nutty you're going across roads and over houses and just it's <laughs> absurd but then you get to the back nine and it's like you're on the coast man it's like mini pebble wow um and it's really linksy uh before i shot my 66 that was my career low was at pacific grove or pa- what did i say but i can't remember pacific grove? pacific grove yeah it was at it was a 68 Wow. Um, and that back nine is just, just awesome. I just loved it. Yeah. Once again, where your talent co coexisted with beauty, and allowed you the two hours of greatness that you had with a little wind yeah, off the coast. Get with better. your dad right in front of right in front of your golf icon, right to yeah. shoot a sixty eight. It was a super special day for me. Yeah. Drove eighteen, and. Made the putt for Eagle on the par four oh, yeah. to shoot my career low. That yeah, is right awesome. in front of Pops. That, that is was awesome. great. Well, if you had to uh, have your Mount Rushmore foursome on what golf course, what would it be? Oh wow, man! I mean, I oh my gosh, I've got to pick Tiger. I mean, I, I know that's such a stereotypical answer, but I got to pick Tiger. If you get Tiger on a good day and he feels like talking, I can't imagine what could be learned by listening to the great. In my opinion, nobody's ever played a game like he played it. So no. to be able to have, like, if you could, if you find this little tough pitch shot and be like, hey, Tiger, what would you do here? And he'd come over and, like, oh, yeah, it. like that would be like the greatest thing ever for me to spend four hours and just pick his brain about. Well, like, just to be in the mind of a champion, right? Yeah. Like, I want to know what he's thinking about. I, I wish he could just have a, a screen playing of all the things that are going through his head as he's walking to his next shot. Yeah. It probably is dead blank if we're being honest. Like, yeah. Um, so yeah, definitely tiger. I feel like I want to, I feel like I just want to have like a man to man conversation with Brooks. I just want to know what, <laughs> I want to know why he's such a dick sometimes <laughs> like, don't be so nonchalant, man. Yeah. It's not cool. Like, Man, just just have a good time for once, damn it. You're playing golf for a living. It's like yeah. not all that serious. Um Yeah, I no, but I'm just kidding. I I like Brooks. I'd like to play with I'd like to play around with Brooks. And I think uh Scott Stallings. What a superhuman. Yeah, dude. I'm so impressed with him. I like his swing a lot. I like his work ethic a lot. Mm-hmm. I like how he just kind of got tired of being a chubber and you know, I feel that way many t- many days, yeah. and I go to the gym for six months straight, and then I stop. But he seems to have found this like clip of motivation where this is who he's going to be. This yeah. is his new identity, and that's what I'm trying to find right yeah. now. Is I want to I want my identity to be physical health and wellness, mm-hmm. um, or how I identify myself is I'm a healthy, fit 
man. Yeah. Um, he seems like th- th- that he's married to that identity, and I want to know how he found that level of motivation to get over the hurdle of, yeah. dude, because I've been there like 30 pounds overweight, and I know he was way over like probably 60 pounds, but mm-hmm. dude, that first that first two weeks, like what do you do? What do you do to just jump in? Like what are you telling yourself? How are you, te- how are you saying it? Um, yeah, I want I want to talk to him about that because he's got a level of motivation that this. I I bet you were we have another conversation fifteen years and Scott Stallings is still throwing a medicine ball, you know, with all of the might of his uh, his his being, five days a week. Yeah, you know, buddy, when he hits a golf ball, you know it got hit. Yeah, that dude hits a heavy, heavy ball. Yeah, it sounds like thunder. He's a he's a ground shaker. He's one of a handful of guys that hits a golf ball and you feel it in your feet. You're like, ooh, yeah. I mean, whoa. Like the guy who like there are two people that really rocked my cage with thunder on the on the ground. Like you could feel every shot they hit. Henrik Stenson hits a golf ball so hard, you just can't believe it. Like every shot he hits sends reverberations across the turf everywhere. Like mm. I would, twice in my life I got a chance to be coaching Sneds with Stenson hitting just to the left or just to the right, and every shot he hits, you feel the vibration on your feet. J.B. Holmes is that way, too. Yeah. And to a little bit, Charles Howe III. J.B. Holmes also hits it like just a mile, though. Yeah, he's like, still, one of my all-time favorite commercials was when he was with Callaway, and the, 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 the scientists started talking about, well, our golf balls don't have a dimple on it, and then he hits it, and he goes, got a dimple on it now <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. it's so good because he's uh, the first time i met him was with snedeker and he goes dude i just found somebody that could, first person I've ever met that could hit it past you and I'm, of course i've heard this about a hundred times i'm like snedeker nobody hits it by me this kid does i'm like no, wait, no whatever so you go over to the driving range of Hermitage golf course we're playing in this pro scratch event and jb's hitting five irons what looked to be about 230 and just so stomped so Brent's like, hey, JB, how far did you hit your five iron? And he doesn't even look up, just stays down in his business, far as you want me to. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. Like, so Hermes Golf Course has got this fence, and it's kind of an oblong range. And the carry of the fence at the very back end was 280. I said, I bet you can't hit your five iron over that fence. Just rakes it over and literally hits a five iron over that fence. And I was like, I bow down to that, bro. That was like, that was insane. And he's like, God. and then I can hit as far as you want me to. And, like, and Bubba Watson did the same thing. when I, the, the last event that Brent played in the, what was then the Nike Tour was in Miami, and he was hitting a Sonar Tech three-wood over the driving range fence into a lake that was 350. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, he hits a bomb. Yeah, he totally. hits a bomb. So it was so incredible. That was pretty cool. Being around people that can really flush it, that's yeah. a pretty fun thing to, to, to feel and, and be around. It's pretty fun. My fourth, did I pick four guys? No, you, well, you, counting I'm yourself. The fourth. You're the fourth. Dang. What golf course? I get rid of Scott Stallings, and I, <laughs> I pick my dad, and yeah. probably the, two, the yeah. four of us would go around. That'd be, be pretty awesome. cool. You, your dad, Tiger Woods, and who's the other one? Who did I say? Oh, Brooks. Brooks I'll place, I'm going to get Brooks out of there. We're going to put we're going to put Seve in there. We're going to put Seve oh, in there. Oh yeah, yeah, no, that'd be a good one. Yeah, because my dad's there, you know. Um, and uh, man, I'd really like to go play TPC Sawgrass and walk it. Really? Yeah, I really I love that course. Um, 
I don't think it's like the most scenic. I don't think, but but we have he and I have got great memories of watching yeah. that Players Championship for years and years. It's a good and years. golf course. It's a really great challenge. And the reason yeah. why I, I think that that course and Augusta National are the two golf courses. Of course, it also works out that they play them every year. But the reason why they're so great is they tax every club in the bag. They tax both directions. Yeah. They tax height, both low and high. Yeah. If and they bring out who is the best player right now. Yeah. Guys like I think you know you and I are long hitters. Um, uh, you're you know what's fun about that course is you just can't hit bombs every time. You can't. I mean, I don't think I've played it twice, three times now, and you know the first time I played it from like the whites or something with my uncle, and then the second couple of times I played it, we played it way back. Um, definitely not where they play it during the champion, but we yeah. played it way back, and you're still not hitting a driver, man. No. I mean, I'm hitting a four iron off one from the way back. Um, on number two from the way back, I'm hitting a three wood down to the bottom yeah. where the lake is. Yep. Um, you know, it's 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 a and my <laughs> the way that I get around the golf course is just by hitting a drive as hard as I can. Mm-hmm. It's just what and I. We can do that at Hillwood. Yeah, we can do that at Hillwood. Can't do it. Can't do it as yeah yeah. You're not. You can't doing do it at Sawgrass. That's no. for sure. No way. Well, my final question is: every once in a while, I, I, I've asked this plenty of times, but this is really one of my favorite questions. Jason Silva is a person that I follow when it comes to the Flow Genome Project and understanding how to access the greatest parts of your mind. And he posed a question once on, on the internet that I found fascinating. And he stated that uh, every, every human experiences three deaths. The first death is that when you find out you're going to die. The second death is when you die. And the third death is when nobody ever mentions your name again. And ever since I heard that, and it was a really great 18-minute you know, speech on what are you going to do to extend the memory of yourself through others? Constant service of other people. Yeah. Nonstop. I'll never, for, the, for, for as long as I live, I will always work to find a way um, to be in service of other people. And uh, that's assuming that, you know, I'm granted the serenity every day to remain sober because as soon as I'm not... Um, I'll, I, I'll only be in service of the one true, the one true being, which is me. Right. Yeah. Um, I'll take all my power back. I'll be selfish and it'll be all about me. So, um, assuming I get to put more 24 hour periods of sobriety together, um, for today is just about today. Yeah. I'll do it again tomorrow, hopefully. Um, but as long as I'm doing that, I can guarantee you that I'm going to be in service of other people. And maybe that'll do it. Yeah. But that well, won't be the reason. Yeah. The final, the final piece I wanted to let you talk about before we go journey pure give us one last thought on if you're struggling out there how can people reach you what can we do to make the people out there that are struggling grab their hand and help them achieve what they're they're searching for uh, well, for the first the first thing I want to mention, Journey Pure is uh, passionate about serving its communities. We have a residential facility in Bowling Green, Kentucky, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, just south of Nashville, in Panama City Beach, Florida, which serves our military. Um, we have a Tricare, um, a, we're a Tricare approved provider there, so we serve active duty at our Freedom Program and veterans through our VA Choice platform. 
Um, we also have the Florida Counseling Center in Melbourne, Florida. We have 13 outpatient centers all around these residential sites. Look, if you're not ready to go to a residential center, if you don't feel like you, you are that far along, or maybe you know you are, but you're not willing to go, that's fine. Start outpatient. Take a step. Take a step in the right direction. You know, if you start outpatient, it's, it's a low threshold very low threshold. You come a couple of days a week. You can go in the evening. You can go in the morning. Um, It's low threshold. You're around other people who also have a low threshold to enter into a residential environment. My prayer is that it works for you. If it doesn't, I'm right here. 301-807-7819. I've given my personal cell phone number out to everybody who is looking to have a conversation about health and wellness from a behavioral health standpoint. Since the day I got into this career, I'll do it till the day I die. I'm passionate about helping people find um, their path to recovery, whatever that looks like for them. Um, And so, again, 301-807-7819, you can call me and talk to me directly. Or if you want to just do some independent research, go to the website, journeypure.com, and you'll be able to look at all of our different properties, different facilities, what we do there, what our specializations are. And, um, you know, my prayer for you is that if you have a loved one who's suffering, you know, don't be afraid to talk about it. And don't be afraid to get your own help. There's Al-Anon. It's a wonderful mechanism for you to get well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but Journey Pure is, is a community service provider, and we're passionate about serving our community. So call me awesome. if you have any questions, and we'd love to talk with you. Well, Josh, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story about something that I'm passionate about, which is mental health, mental wellness and mental illness and to to erase the stigma that comes with it yeah so thank you very much for coming thank you here do this and i look forward to seeing you on the course soon yeah man i appreciate appreciate it i gotta say this is a stroke of genius the new stroke lab putters from odyssey are engineered to build a better stroke Odyssey completely rebalanced the putter by using a multi-material shaft that moved the weight towards the head and the grip You'll feel the difference immediately. And with every putt, you'll actually be building a better stroke. And a better stroke is what makes more putts. The new Stroke Lab from Odyssey, the number one putter in golf. Available in stores February 8th. Learn more at odysseygolf.com.